MSW Media. This week, former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen testified before multiple congressional committees, including a public hearing before the House Oversight Committee. During his testimony, Cohen tied Trump to criminal activity and presented evidence of the hush money payments that formed the basis of his campaign finance convictions. What should we make of Michael Cohen's testimony? And what does this mean for the Trump administration and the criminal investigations of Trump and his associates? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. So, Patty, this has been quite a week. Um, it's, it, you know, it is a week that contained so many uh, new revelations and a lot of the week on the legal front in particular focused on the testimony of Michael Cohen, uh, which overshadowed a lot of crazy news, including obviously we've we've heard since then of the uh, of the uh, inner of the order by Trump of uh uh, ordering that uh, Jerry Kushner be given top secret clearance. Right. There's, there's all it's, sorts of stuff. That becomes, how does that become background noise to everything that's happening? How does the you know meeting with North Korea, although I think that's obviously a lot going on there that people are paying attention to, but the hearings on uh, that we got to see on, on Wednesday, it was it was crazy. And even the moment where, uh, was, it, was it Meadow or Meadow that brought out the w- black woman to say, look, President Trump can't possibly be racist. This one, she can't tell you, she can't speak right now, but I shall speak for, you, for her. It was bizarre. Yeah, I thought so too. It was very strange. And I, I have to say, um, it, it's unrecognizable to me how, how things have changed and how far we've come in in these years. I mean, you know, when I think about when, you know, when I was in college and law school, the Republican Party uh, was trying to um, oust Bill Clinton. And part of their claim was that he lacked the character to be president of the United States. The 2000 election uh, when I was in law school uh, was about, in part, you know, restoring dignity to the White House was what the, 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 the George W. Bush campaign was supposedly about. We go from that to a uh, a, um, a, uh, a presidency that is rife with scandal and innuendo, immorality, um, and that's just at the baseline. Forget the, the criminal, you know, potential criminality and the, the, the law breaking, obstruction of justice, and everything else. Right. I mean, when you're paying off your mistress and, and wanting to hide your test scores from from college, it's it's a strange moment. In uh, American history, look, I remember when I was growing up, I, used, I was very excited in grade school to run home and watch the Iran-Contra hearings. This was uh, something totally different. <laughs> yeah. On a different scale. We, we have really reached the point where uh, political theater has turned into a circus. And, oh. and I don't know what to do. I mean, I, I don't know if it's possible uh, to have serious conversations right now between the left and the right on the issues. I, there's very little overlap. And, you know, I I don't know how to bridge that gap. Uh, and that that's a challenge. I mean, I you know, I um, 
you know, I I will tell you, I you know, I wrote a piece today in Time Magazine that has gotten a lot of guffaws from people on the right. I you know, I thought it would be a piece that they might appreciate because it essentially talks about the limits of what Mueller can do. I think that the world has gotten to a point where there's a red team and a blue team in politics and you can't conceive of anything else. There are some people who break the mold and I give a lot of credit to Justin Amash, I think his name is, mm-hmm. the congressman on that committee, the lone Republican congressman who I think asked serious questions of Mr. Cohen and I thought I respected that because the way I looked at it is regardless of your views about Cohen or about Trump, you have a witness in front of you, ask him some questions. And I would have done the same thing. I will tell you if I was a, a Democrat on uh, that committee, uh, you know, a year or two ago, and they were trying to question Rod Rosenstein or question James Comey uh, on some subject or, or Eric Holder or some other Democrat, I would ask him questions about things I cared about or I thought were important. Well, and I would have thought that some of those, uh, some of them on the committee would have at least been lawyers. Right. Yeah. They would have that skill set, wouldn't they, to, to ask questions and know how to craft it, to, you know, sh- even if they wanted to shape the conversation in their direction, you would think that there would be a path for them to do that. I think what may have happened was that there was some sort of um, instruction that was set from the top. You know, maybe Congressman Jordan said that, you know, if you're going to do something along these lines, fine. Otherwise, give me your time. And, uh, okay. you know, something like that. It was a political strategy. And, you know, maybe these things are effective. I will well, say for the base. I mean, yeah, they loved it. I think so. I mean, I think, you know, I, I do um, I, I do, you know, wonder and worry whether we will get to a point where we have Congress um, moving to a point where we can have serious discussion and investigation of some of these issues. I think. And I give credit to Congressman uh, Cummings, who who headed that committee, because I think, you know, it was a very contentious and partisan topic. And he did um, kind of keep a lid on it and keep it uh, under control and have some level of decorum there. And I, I give him credit for that. Um, but, you know, nonetheless, uh, it was, um, you know, it was something where it was basically two ships passing in the night. You had two different. Uh, hearings going on at the same time. The Republican hearing, which is all about, you know, they had signs up about how um, Cohen was a liar. It was all about whether he was a liar or not. And then you had the Democrats who were trying to explore various points regarding Trump's finances and so forth. Yeah, no, there's certainly, and, and open the door for a lot, a lot of investigation too. I, I am curious as to what, you know, possibilities are uh, there now because of the questions that were asked, whether it was about the taxes. You know, it was interesting when uh, he said that the, the president, he doesn't believe the president is being audited right now, which was, wasn't that the president's excuse for not releasing his tax returns? It's yeah, I mean, that was the original excuse. Yes. And it sort of evolved over time, right? Well, I'm under audit, but then, you know, he's not under audit for every year, so why not re- re- release every year you can? And mm. It, that never made a lot of sense to me in any event. Uh, even if you're under audit, I don't know why that would prevent you from releasing your tax returns. You know, I think the reality is there's probably political reasons uh, he doesn't want to release his returns. You know, I, and that's something that goes beyond him. I mean, there's a lot of, of people who pay um, uh, so little in taxes that I think a lot of people would be outraged by it, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of people have found ways to avoid uh, paying taxes. And so I think that, um, I think that, you know, it, it the the hearing is important, not just in terms of the legal stuff, criminality and so forth, but in just notifying the American public and giving the American public a sense, a chance to get information from people who know about issues that matter, regardless of their legal standing or not. I mean, whether or not we get Trump's tax returns, 
knowing about his taxes is something that um, the American people have a right to know about and Absolutely. getting questions about. I still want to know what his SAT scores were. Yeah, that I'm was. Cur- I'm really was, curious. Was that something? I just want to know I did better than a, a sitting president of the United States. I, I <laughs> would not be surprised, Patty. You're pretty smart. Uh, I, I got to tell you, that was one of the more bizarre moments, right? Yeah, how aggressively he wanted to hide that. Yeah, I think, and that's been corroborated by folks from the, wasn't it from the school? Yeah, wasn't it? Was it Fordham? I think. I think uh, so. Yeah, they came forward and said, "Yep, we got some threatening letters on that." That was okay. bizarre. Yeah. Uh, that's for sure. Um, you know, I don't know what to make of that. I think in life you get criticized. I get criticized, and that's just part of the part of life, right? Well, well, plus, I mean, you can always just tell the story. Yeah, I don't take tests very well. What's the big deal? Right. I'm a, I'm still wealthy and successful. Mm-hmm. I look at look at the life I've created. He could, he says he doesn't like the well-educated, didn't he? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I don't he get it. He could say, look, I'm one of you. I, I don't get it either. I don't, I frankly, I don't think you should judge people based on their test scores. No. I, and I, I don't think life is a series of standardized tests and I respect people. Yeah, maybe it was because yeah. his dad wasn't uh, pleased with it and it brings back bad memories. Yeah, you know, uh, it must a, be. It's a trigger for him. Must be. <laughs> wow. All right, so now let's bring in Mimi Roca. Uh, all of you know Mimi because she's appeared on this podcast a number of times now. She is also a, a former federal prosecutor in the Southern District of New York, a MSNBC legal analyst, and really one of the smartest people out there thinking about these issues. I, I have so much respect for Mimi, and that is why I keep inviting her back on the podcast. I think she is really smart and knows her stuff. So let's bring her in now. Welcome back to the show, Mimi. I appreciate you joining us again. Thanks for having me. So it's been a while, I will say, that the, since we've been focused entirely on congressional testimony. This was the first, it's a big public hearing of this Congress, the uh, new Congress that has a Democratic House majority. Um, and I thought it it did not, definitely did not disappoint. I mean, Michael Cohen was in front of multiple committees, but we got to to see publicly his testimony f- before the House Oversight Committee, and I thought it was very interesting. Yeah, I did too. I thought, you know, we sort of got a real preview of what was to come through his um, written statement ahead of time, which was in and of itself pretty surprising. Um, but then, you know, I thought that even more sort of um, interesting things came out during the questioning. And I thought he conducted himself um, as well as he could under these circumstances. Yeah, he was definitely, I think, in a tough spot. Uh, Republicans were attacking him very aggressively. And I have to say, I was very surprised um, by the behavior of Mark Meadows. I guess Ugh, not <laughs> what a train wreck. Yeah, I, you know, I got to say, I, I'm, I guess nothing should surprise me anymore. But I just thought... His tactics were not effective even for his own side, what he's trying to accomplish. In other words, Jim Jordan, I thought, brought up some legitimate points about Cohen, whereas Meadows was like, would like ask Cohen a question, then cut him off one or two or three words in, and then just start berating him or, or badgering him or uh, you know, bad-mouthing him in some way. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think Meadows in particular, but really all of the Republican congressmen, almost all of them, um, you know, their strategy was really to either not let Cohen talk or to um, ask him questions repeatedly where his answers would confirm what he had already said in the first few minutes of his testimony, which is, 
I'm, I have lied. I lied in the past a lot and I've committed crimes and I have been convicted of felonies. And, you know, it's just, I mean, you know very well that that's a common defense attorney tactic at trials. And I think when they do it at trials, frankly, they do it a lot more effectively. And uh, then, then, you know, there are defense attorneys who can do it very effectively. But even then, juries lose patience with that after a few times because it becomes, okay, is that really all you've got here? You're you're just going to keep pointing out over and over that this guy is a liar and, and has done really bad things in his life. But what about what he said? Is that true? Because it sounds true. <laughs> and, you know, and, and that I mean, that's what jurors, I think, you know, that I saw, and I'm curious if you did too, in the trials, that they, they, would, they would want, they would, at some point, they would say, okay, but what are you going to address the facts that he said? And how are you going to cut against those? And, you know, it's a little different in a trial where they don't have a burden of proof and all that. But, but it, it's the same idea here. I just thought it got old really fast. Um, their their strategy of just going after Cohen as a liar. Yeah, I have to say it, what what I saw was very poor execution on their side, Mimi. In other words, it, like you said, it can be a component of a strategy, but not the entire strategy. I, I thought there was an interesting commentary where one a, a Republican um, on the uh, I believe a Republican on the committee said anonymously to a journalist. Well, we we didn't contest the facts of it because there's no defending the facts of what was happening uh, that he was talking about. Uh, so that's why we stuck to him being a liar. But I, but you know, and I know that uh, there are other tactics in addition to uh, uh, attacking someone for their previous lies that you can use with a witness, even if the underlying facts are really bad. You know, one that would come to mind as a you know common tactic at trial would be testing the limits of someone's knowledge or at least ex- exploring the lack of their knowledge. So, you know, I, if I was a Republican, I would have like a whole line of questioning. They'll be like, well, you don't know this. You don't know that. You weren't here during this and that and so on. And at least that would be something. I mean, that would give you something to work with, and they didn't do that either. Absolutely. And also even, I mean, even the lies that they went after, they just kept trying to hit hard on the, um, you know, you, you, you've been a liar, you lied and uh, your taxes, this, that, and the other thing, as opposed to, you know, taking some really sharp examples of things that he had lied about. Even within his own testimony, there were, you know, a few things that were inconsistent, and, and they could have you know, gone after those type of things more. So, yeah, absolutely. I thought I thought the strategy may have been one of, you know, we, we, we have to go after the messenger because we can't really attack the message, but they didn't do that very well, I thought. Yeah, and I thought some of the stuff that they did focus on was not that compelling in terms of some of the, the lies that they brought out. You know, there's this document that came out afterwards i think uh jordan uh congressman jordan um uh put out there saying that he had referred various uh pieces of his testimony to the doj for prosecution is lying to congress and uh, some of our listeners asked about this you know how hard is that to prove and some of the stuff was like he lied about whether he wanted a job at the white house or not right um and i think everyone should know uh, should should be should should understand everyone who's listening to this it's much harder to prove that someone knowingly and willfully made a false statement than you might think 
Uh, I've tried to explain that on this podcast before when many of you were asking me whether Jeff Sessions was going to get prosecuted for perjury. Um, it's just you have to really prove that at the time the person, you know, understood that they were saying something false and they had the intent to deceive Congress when they were saying it. Whereas, you know, whether he really wanted a job at the White House may have depended on things. It may have changed over time. It could have depended on what position he was offered and all sorts of things. Right. And also, I mean, I think, you know, it, it, it's so I mean, you're so right about how much harder it is to prove. I mean, it, the questions they were asking were really, you know, didn't you tell people you wanted a job at the White House? And, you know, he was saying that's not true. Now, is he saying what isn't true is that he told people or is he saying what isn't true is that he wanted the job at the White House? So, you know, and, and nobody pinned him down on that. Like, if you wanted to really bring a perjury case on that, you'd have to pin down what the exact lie is. Is it is it what he said or is it what he thought? And then the other issue with this perjury referral and why I think it's really just a political uh, showpiece is, legally speaking, I don't think that even if you could show he lied about this, it would really meet the materiality test, which, you know, we've also talked about, as you've talked about so many times, with respect to the other lies, um, you know, that have been prosecuted by Mueller, that it really has to be something that's material to the investigation. And here, I mean, the most it would go to would be his sort of motive to lie, I guess, that if he was felt shunned by not getting a job in the White House, then he had some motive to lie. But I, I don't, I don't believe that that would meet the materiality test, but I'd have to research it more. But just, you know, off off the top of my head, I really don't think so. Yeah. And just to to sort of help explain that point for everyone, you know, when Mimi's talking about materiality, really what that means is, does this lie matter? In other words, if you ask Michael Cohen, what did you have for breakfast, Mr. Cohen? And he says that, you know, he had uh, eggs and bacon and in in fact, he had a a croissant sandwich or whatever. uh, That that is not a lie that matters. But a lie that matters is if he's lying about, you know, the hush money payments or something that is important. Um. And what you know, Mimi's saying is, well, you could try to construct some argument where you're like, well, he's biased against Trump because he's mad he didn't get a job at the White House. It's just a, it's it's a little bit of a stretch to put it mildly. So, I, yeah, I thought all of that was kind of silly. Um, and I will say, um, you know, I will say, Mimi, I think, you know, you you raise, um, you know, interesting points when you talk about how the importance of them pinning him down, following up on answers. And that's something I spent a lot of time this week uh, talking about. You know, I spent more time than I expected this week on this co- on the Cohen hearing because a, a, a friend of mine who I went to college and law school with is on the over- House Oversight Committee. So I spent uh, a, quite a bit of time working with him about how to ask questions uh, in an appropriate way, what's the most effective way to do it, and coming up with various lines of questioning. And one of the things I told him is you have to listen to the, the answers of the person and then try to get when they're being vague to pin them down on the specifics. And if I had to pick one thing that con- people who are members of Congress don't do well, is that they have these prefab questions that somebody came up with and they just move to the next question without listening to what the answer was before it. Absolutely. And, you know, look, I guess part of it depends whether you're really trying to get facts out or not. And on the Republican side, I think for the most part, as we've been talking about, they weren't trying to get facts out because the facts aren't good for them, which is very telling. And the American public should notice that and and pay attention to that. Right. The strategy that they were using is telling because they seem to even understand that the facts 
and that if you believe Michael Cohen and you accept the facts that he was saying, it's really damaging for the president. And on the Democratic side, I thought some of them, you know, did a better job than others. Um, but and but their goal should have been, and I and I think was at least in theory, to try to get as much information out as possible. And it sounds like they're going to have another shot at that. And you know, I hope maybe people will listen to your questions, Justin. <laughs> well, great. I will tell you. Yeah, I mean, I, just in, in case people are curious, some of the other things I told them was to not try to rush through it. I mean, there's always one or two Congress uh, members per committee who is, it realizes they have five minutes. And so they think that their goal is to rush through and ask like 100 questions in five minutes. And you can't even understand what they're saying and they're a speed demon and they're cutting the person off. I don't find that to be effective uh, either. I think it's effective to pick a topic or two that you're trying to explore in five minutes and to work through that that specific topic in detail and in a in a normal tone of voice. Uh, and try to provide some context for the people who are listening so they understand. Here's an exhibit we're looking at uh, is what I did with uh, the uh, with Congressman Connor, where we pulled out an exhibit. We're like, OK, let's tease out the implications of that. Or, I, you know, I thought another line of questioning that was very effective was Ocasio-Cortez, uh, you know, work through uh, tax issues and who might have knowledge of that. I think Dealing with kind of picking something you can tackle and just doing that and getting in and out in your five minutes is probably the right way to go. Right. I did also think, though, and this is a little bit different, I think it was Congressman Connolly who kind of did some rehabilitation, sort of what prosecutors would do on redirect um, of uh, of Cohen, you know, sort of after a cross-examination, basically saying, Okay, if if you know what what the Republicans are, are asking of you and and sort of you know inferring about asking us to infer about you were you know dispositive. If that were it, then we'd never you know there'd never be a RICO prosecution or a, a big you know criminal prosecution sort of ever because we would never be able to rely on you know convicted felons, people who lie, et cetera, mm-hmm. which obviously you know, it is sort of actually the bread and butter of how prosecutors build um, build cases, even though they never solely rely on cooperators like that. They they they're essential tool uh, because those are the ones that are, you know, quote, inside the room. Um, and I, I thought that was well, that was effective to do. You know, it's one thing for us commentators to sort of say that afterwards, after the testimony. But um, to have him do it in the middle like that, I thought was pretty effective. Yeah, I thought it was very interesting. You heard a lot of different approaches to it, and they were very different. Um, and, you know, some focus, there was uh, some questioning. I think it was uh, Congressman Ruda um, focused on the relationship with Felix Sater, Felix Sater, which had nothing really to do in terms of purely elite, you know, legal issue. But I think it's a relevant uh, fact that, you know, uh, Felix Sater and the and uh, President Trump have had a very close connection and Mr. Sater's and uh, kind of an unsavory character and so forth. So I thought that there was a lot of interesting uh, approaches to it. And I I thought what was important about it and I and I want to make sure listeners understand is that there are a lot of there's a lot of knowledge that's going on behind the scenes. That's very important uh, that the Southern District of New York prosecutors have and so on. But what what the purpose of the congressional uh, hearings are is to make uh, some of that knowledge available to the public. And I thought what was helpful and interesting here was that we got little windows into some of the things that those prosecutors are looking at. 
And that, a lot of listeners actually have uh, questions. Do you have Do you have any thoughts on the two closed sessions this week? A, a Dem con- congressman said GOP congressman hardly hung around for session three. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts? Well, uh, you know, it, the the closed sessions are very different than the open sessions, the public sessions that we that we saw. Closed sessions, it's a lot of staff members that are there usually. I've read transcripts of a, a lot of closed session uh, questioning uh, from the House Intel Committee. Uh, during the last Congress, and it would be a lot of staffers asking questions. And it's, frankly, it's a much more substance because there's less speeches that are being given. There's no cameras there. Um, so it's, I think it's, it's a different, it has a different feel to it. I think both are important, though, because the open sessions we get to see, and we're all here on this podcast discussing what happened in the open session. You know, I think it's telling that the closed session uh, it, there was so much information given to House Intel Committee that they're having Cohen back in March, which I think is very interesting uh, from that perspective. Do you have any thoughts on that, Mimi? Um, yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, I, I'm assuming that there there actually was probably a lot of substance in those. I think the questioners, you know, they're staffers, but some of them actually are, are, are probably people who have more experience with actual courtroom or, or questioning of, of witnesses. So they might even be able to elicit um, information better. So I think once we do someday and at some point, we don't know when that is, learn at least some of what what the testimony is in those hearings. It's going to be a whole other uh, you know, category of, of things to talk about. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think what, if I had to say what, you know, what comes out of this hearing, what was important? Does this hearing matter? First of all, I will say a lot. There was a lot of really interesting stuff there. And I am in some ways I'm disappointed in in the in the press. And I say this as somebody who comments a lot in the press. Uh, obviously, I comment on CNN and I content, comment a lot in print media. But I'm disappointed in, that we did not talk enough, I think, about some of the very interesting and important things that Cohen said. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 the line of questions that I had worked on with Congressman Khanna that he asked, Cohen said he, he conspired with Donald Trump Jr. and Trump and, and Alan Weisselberg to commit fraud. I mean, maybe, maybe that's the true or maybe not, but that strikes me as like a, quite an assertion for someone to make, uh, and it didn't, didn't really seem to move the needle at all. Like, no one really seemed to care about that. I don't know why, but it, it seemed important to me. Um, I, don't, I, I agree. I, I agree with that, and I, I sort of feel equally both frustrated and, and a little bit baffled. I'm, the day of the hearing, I think you were probably in the same position. I mean, I was on during breaks and I was on right at the end on MSNBC right at the end of the day, right after the hearing ended, and I was on that night. And I kept trying to say, you know, that in my view, this, there were some huge bombshells, and I don't use that word lightly. Um, but, you know, I thought that even though we sort of already knew that Cohen had said in court under oath, you know, Trump directed me uh, and coordinated, you know, and with these campaign finance payments. That the the detail that we got about what that meant and how he basically told Cohen to lie for him about it, and that he, you know, they had concocted the scheme and the the checks that the reimbursement uh, piece of it that they were going to fakely call this retainer, uh, you know, and that that was being carried out in the Oval Office. It just, it first of all, all made a lot of sense to me. It just, it comports with what 
you know, the Southern District had put in its charging documents and just the recording that we've heard um, uh, with respect to, you know, at least one of the payments to uh, Karen McDougal and where Trump and uh, Cohen are talking about that. Like it, it all just fit together. And it wasn't he seemed so credible about it in the sense that he wasn't exaggerating it. He wasn't making it more than it was. He was just seemed to be telling it like it was. And he, that I thought I thought the check was very good corroboration for that. I think yeah. there's probably more corroboration out there that the Southern District has. And um, I thought that was a really big deal. And, and I, I don't feel like it, it is getting enough attention. And I'm not sure why that is. I feel like the instinct was to go right to the question of, was Cohen telling the truth as opposed to, and why does that matter? What did Cohen say exactly that's such a big deal? Yeah, I got to say, you know, I have a lot of get a lot of suggestions for who I should have in the podcast and so forth. And Mimi, the, you kind of walking through that is exactly why I try. I always invite you back on this podcast all the time. Because <laughs> you're someone who I think you have experienced looking at white collar criminal cases, which is what a lot of this is. I That's my background as well. And when I see... When I see these, the checks and the, the reimbursement and all that, what I see are false statements uh, that mm-hmm. ultimately find their way in the books and records of the Trump organization and perhaps may have found their way outside there, whether if they went to a bank or something like that. Uh, so it, you're really not far away from federal and state crime. And I had a lot, I, you know, to me, you're so close to charged crimes there because we know that the Southern District has charged a crime and Cohen's going to prison for that. And I had been asking for all this time, who's this executive two in the charging document? And that's why I was like, we got to find this out. You, I think you and I had discussed that uh, in in advance. And so that obviously was uh, Congressman kind of asked that to to Cohen. I thought that was very interesting. And then, you know, the Wall Street Journal comes out a day later and says, well, he actually got it wrong. It's controller so-and-so from the Trump organization. Whether Cohen's right or not, I thought it was very interesting. Obviously, Trump Jr. had some role because he signed a check. Uh, it's it. I mean, what's Trump Jr.'s role versus this controller? I don't know. But to me, you know, those are sort of questions that if I'm looking, looking at this purely from a legal perspective of who's got potential criminal liability, that to me is very important. Absolutely. I actually didn't see that article about the controller. I, I, I thought, you know, that it made sense when he said uh Donald Trump Jr. But but right. I mean, Donald Trump Jr.'s name and Alan Weisselberg, obviously, the accountant for the Trump organization. I mean, their names, I think, came up, you know, certainly Weisselberg and, and even Trump Jr.'s name, you know, probably more than anybody else um, in terms of involvement with not just this one campaign finance scheme, but the whole host of other potential crimes that I think, you know, we're talking about and you and I and, and many others are starting to see formulate. And, and, and some of them go back, right? Some of them are probably going to be crimes that were committed, you know, uh, a long time ago in terms of inflating assets and buying real estate and getting loans. But a lot of them, uh, you know, my guess, and, and it's more than a guess, it's, it's, I would say an informed opinion, uh, are going to, you know, have continued uh, on, you know, well into the time before his presidency. And, and even, you know, we don't know what they've been doing since then. Um, so I, I just think there's there's so much sort of fodder there, um, some of which Cohen is, knows and is going to be helpful. And the other big bombshell that came out of this, we had all sort of suspected and inferred that Cohen was working with the Southern District of New York now. So in other words, post 
his sentence post receiving that three year sentence from the judge that he had Mm -hmm. gone back and was trying to cooperate with them. He pretty much confirmed that. Now, we haven't heard that from the Southern District, but I I mean, I don't think they would let him say I'm working with the Southern District of New York. I don't think they would let him say that in Congress and not rebut it if it weren't true. So I sort of take that as fact now. And I think that's pretty important. Yeah. And I'd also say, you know, as a, as a side note, you know, you one thing you had mentioned is I don't you said, you know, you didn't know exactly why there wasn't a focus on some of the details. I will tell you, I had a conversation with a, a producer about that behind the scenes. And, you know, this was just one person's opinion and it wasn't I'm not not speaking on behalf of any organization or anything, but just simply saying she didn't understand a lot of that stuff. And it was hard to get mm-hmm. her head around. And I think that's part of right. what's going on here. You know, some of the, the stuff that seems more interesting is like, oh, there's this phone call with Roger Stone and WikiLeaks. And and I think that right. part of the imagination of this, I think part of the issue is that the, the story about. Was there a conspiracy with Russia or WikiLeaks is very gripping. And I get that. I think it's like it's like a Hollywood movie or something. But, you know, I, I, I wrote that piece in Time magazine today. It's obviously been controversial. I've been dealing with a lot of back and forth about it today. But my point there that I made in that piece was essentially that I thought. Mueller's investigation isn't even about collusion. We expect, you know, we've bought into this idea. You know, Trump says no collusion. We say yes, collusion. It's all about is there collusion? Is there collusion? I will tell you, Mimi, I have been asked the question, is this collusion? Is that collusion? Is there collusion? (laughs) 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 times, including multiple times yesterday in relation to Cohen's Mm -hmm. testimony, which had nothing to do with that issue, very, very little to do with that issue. And I, I have to say, to me, it's not really the important issue that we should be focusing on here. And I was hoping that the Cohen testimony would focus us on some of these crimes that are apparent and are very close to, it seems to me, to being proven. But I, it, it has not really happened. Yeah, although I will say this, and, and this may just be because I, you know, obviously was in the Southern District of New York. But even in the kinds of questions that I've been getting from print journalists and requests, for, you know, appearances and things people want me to talk about, I have um, noticed a shift, really, not just since Cohen testified, but, you know, starting when we heard about Cohen testifying and some of the things were starting to come out, and then definitely after Cohen testifying, more of a, oh, wait a minute, the Southern District of New York stuff, and I think you're right, it's harder to define, and it's not one thing with a gripping storyline, but the Southern District of New York stuff sounds like it could be really serious. And at the end of the day, that is true because, first of all, the crimes that the Southern District of New York might be looking at, putting aside a campaign finance for a second, but bank fraud, insurance fraud, um, you know, other any kind of fraud that we're talking about, really, those crimes are actually, I don't want to say easier, easy to prove, but they're, they're easier to, they're, they're the bread and butter of prosecutors' offices in a lot of ways, federal prosecutors and, and some state, right? So right. I think to the, you know, it, it, it's not the same as trying to prove some grand conspiracy with, you know, a foreign power um, or, uh, you know, something like that. So, so it may be a lot less interesting and a lot less gripping, but at the end of the day, you can prob- they can probably – um, find that evidence if it's there it, more easily. So I think, and I think people sort of are starting to understand that that this might be more tangible, this might be more attainable. Rachel Maddow did something last night about that, about 
you know, the possibility of isn't this, you know, bank fraud that Trump inflated assets about a home uh, in Bedford, New York to get a loan and, you know, couldn't isn't that just pretty straightforward bank fraud that the Southern District of New York does all the time? Now, the question is, is that stuff going to matter to the public? You know, um, and that, that's back to the political question. Well, that was part of the reason I wrote that piece. I do think that there is a sense to which imagination has run so wild that there's so much of a yeah. focus on what could be and what what this smoking gun out there is with Russia. And I, I worry that, as you point, you know, as you said, it's very hard to prove a conspiracy with a foreign power that's a foreign intelligence service that's covering its tracks and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's much yeah. more straightforward. Here's what what I see when I when I used to prosecute fraud cases. My first question would be, where's the false statement? Is there a false statement here to a bank? to someone right. else and i see false statements here so my spidey sense is a as a former white collar prosecutor I'm like oh okay there's a lot going on here potentially you know there's a lot uh, yeah that cohen talked about too is as far as uh understanding the code the trump code and what he means when he says something mm. and what he wants you to do is there anything as as prosecutors that can be done to prove something like that well i don't i don't know that you can sort of prove it. But it, again, what you can do is, first of all, you, you wouldn't just talk to Cohen, right? You talk to other people who, um, you know, worked with Trump and, and who have not all sat down and, you know, got their story straight. And, you know, probably what you'd hear is a similar pattern from different people who worked with and for Trump. And they don't even have to be you know, people who are cooperating witnesses. I mean, I think a lot, we've heard about a lot of different people from Trump's world who have been subpoenaed and talked to, and, you know, maybe people don't quite understand why, but sometimes it's just sort of is to hear, you know, consistently that this is how Trump operated, um, that he, you know, and, and, and it, I mean, it does, I, any prosecutor who heard that testimony was like, oh, yeah, that's like every mob boss you know, case that I ever did where they don't say things outright. They don't tell them how to do it. They they signal it. They, you know, do it in a way. And, and there's a relationship there already between the person sort of giving the unspoken instruction and the person receiving it. So they don't need to say it. That's the whole point of having this 10 year, you know, relationship with someone who, you know, you can trust with your your dirty deeds, that you don't have to say it out loud. So when you do a wink and a nod and say, yes, Michael, you tell them, uh, you'll be telling them that, of course, I didn't know, right? Because, mm -hmm. of course, I didn't know. You know, it, it doesn't have to be, and you're going to lie about it. It's just, this is what you do. And so I thought, first of all, it just was very, you know, believable and, and, and rang true with things that we know and have even seen in public about Trump. But I think you would try to corroborate it by hearing about similar conversations, even if it's not about that particular topic, similar interactions with other people, not just Cohen. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting testimony as well. I, you know, and it, it's, it was actually to me, you know, some of the most um, revealing testimony. In other words, there are some of these, as, as uh, Mimi mentioned earlier, bombshells, uh, but uh, which obviously they are to me, uh, you know, some of these financial things. But I thought some of the most interesting testimony was Michael Cohen talking about how he how things work between him and Trump. And you could see journalists who really had spent time studying Trump came to similar mm -hmm. conclusions. I mean, you know, I, I saw, you know, I was watching kind of Maggie, Maggie Haberman and some of her reactions to this where she's like, yeah, this is sort of how. 
people have described their relationship with Trump and getting, you know, instructions from Trump kind of intuitively. And that, you know, that is, it is very similar to other relationships that I saw when I was a prosecutor as well. I mean, I thought it was very, yeah. very interesting testimony. And one other point I would make about that, again, it's, a, it's kind of a prosecutor point, but, you know, if Cohen was there to lie and just try to bury Trump, why wouldn't he just say, yes, Trump told me to lie about Trump Tower and the timing. Trump told me to lie about the hush money payments. This is what he said, you know, and put it in really explicit language. I mean, everybody can understand and there's no debate and it's just, do you believe Cohen or not? As opposed to now, you know, he knows that he's testifying and people are going to say, do we believe him? And even if we believe him, is that really enough to have this unspoken kind of agreement? So, you know, it, it gives it what prosecutors would call, you know, the ring of truth or, you know, the, the air of credibility that he doesn't seem to be uh, going out further than he needs to. And that was something that Mueller actually said about Cohen in their 5K, in their sentencing letter in support of Cohen. They, there was a sentence in there where they said he's someone who tells us what he knows, but doesn't embellish about other people, you know, when, when he doesn't know the facts. And that was how he read to me as a witness. Yeah, I thought that was very interesting. And, and that's a really, really important point, Mimi. It's something that prosecutors often point to in a witness is, you know, the witnesses that are least believable is when they have these perfect stories, how everything lines right. up just right that fits some theory. The, the most believable witnesses are the ones who could have made up some grand story, but their, sto- their, their, their testimony about what happened is actually it's kind of incomplete. And that's what you got from Michael Cohen. Like, he's like, look, I don't know what, you know, if Trump knew about the Trump Tower meeting, here's what I do know and what I infer from that. And it's sort of a halfway explanation or uh, I don't know what, what Trump, whether Trump conspired with Russia, but I do know about this one conversation. And that's really all I know. And I have my suspicions. I thought that was very interesting. And I thought it definitely, like you said, it gave it the ring of truth because the things he was solid on where I think was more of that, the the payments and some of the financial stuff, the things that he had a more substantial involvement in. Yeah. And Trump even came out, right. And said, yeah, you know, that, that line that Michael Cohen testified to about, I don't know if there was collusion, uh, you know, well, wow, Cohen was being truthful there. That, that really amazed me. And of course he's saying, believe Cohen there because it's, helpful to Trump, but don't believe everything else he's saying because it's not helpful to Trump. And that, mm-hmm. I mean, again, I've found, and I, I'm guessing you have too, Renata, that juries just don't buy that sort of picking and choosing. Not that you have to believe every single thing or not believe every single thing someone says, but to try and divide it up and say, only believe the things that are good for me and don't believe the things that are bad for me. It's just not how, you know, people work and, and how juries understand things. And I mean, I hope that the American people like a jury, you know, sort of isn't fooled by that. But yeah, I will say um, that has been a hallmark of Trump is, you know, the New York Times is right in this one article, but all the rest of their articles are fake news or same thing with CNN right. or NBC or so forth. I, I One thing I want to talk about is a little bit is about Alan Weisselberg, because there's been talk about bringing him back as uh, Congressman Cummings, I think, has talked about that. But we know he received, I think, use immunity uh, from the, the Southern District of New York. In other words, he received immunity just for purposes of the testimony that he was required was was compelled to give, not a broader immunity. The reports have been that he isn't fully cooperating. 
Uh, there's a lot of reason to believe then that he may not come in because unless he gets broader immunity, which I think Congress would be unlikely to give him, I don't know why his attorney would bring him in front of Congress other than taking the fifth. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about Mr. Weisselberg. Yeah, look, I think I think this is a complicated one because the fact that he he did get some kind of and I'm sure your you know your listeners are pretty well educated at this point, but this very limited immunity, meaning you come in and talk to us on this day. Uh, or not just to say, but before this grand jury about this topic, and you won't be prosecuted based on those statements. But anything outside of that, if we have other evidence, you know, and, or we bring up other topics at other times, you know, you don't get immunity for that. Um, and so, so it means that they that they viewed his involvement, and we hear from Cohen. I mean, that his involvement seems significant enough that he needs that kind of immunity. So either, and it, it would be dramatic in and of itself for him, you know, the, the president's sort of lifelong accountant to take the fifth before testifying before Congress, or if Congress really wants him and is going to give him broader immunity, I really do hope that they, you know, coordinate that closely with the Southern District of New York, because it could be, we don't know, that the Southern District of New York is still pursuing a case against Weisselberg, who, um, you know, is uh, clearly pretty intimately involved in all of this. And if they give him immunity in Congress, it can, as you know, greatly impact that and make it almost impossible for prosecutors to then charge him. They'd have to show that nothing, none of their evidence was tainted by uh, his immunized testimony, that they, they didn't learn anything by the immunized testimony. And that's hard to do. Right. I believe that was the, the case. There was Oliver North's case, right? That his conviction got overturned on that basis, if I remember correctly. Yeah. 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 It, and, 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 you know, another question that came a lot from listeners was how the Southern District of New York and, for example, the New York Attorney General might coordinate with one another. And uh, I'm curious uh, if you can, you know, be, explain that to our listeners a little bit. Um, well, first of all, I think, I mean, if we're talking about the, you know, New York Attorney General's office or the Manhattan DA's office, I think they might be two slightly different questions. Um, actually, and, and we've heard about involvement of, of both of those offices. I think with the New York Attorney General's office, historically, it's easier for um, the Southern District to coordinate with them because they tend not to have um, as much overlap, right? The New York Attorney General's office can't charge broadly, you know, they, they can only charge criminal uh crimes in certain specific areas. They can't, they don't have sort of broad jurisdiction. So it's easier to coordinate and pick and choose, okay, New York State Attorney General, you're going to do everything having to do with the uh, the foundation and the charitable type of stuff, and we're going to do everything having to do with the bank loans. Um, you know, in terms of double jeopardy, it's easier for them to divide out, okay, maybe you, you know, New York State Attorney General's office can uh, charge something just doing with books and records that is very, you know, different elements of the crime from what the federal charges would be. Um, and so there's no, there's not necessarily the same double jeopardy problems. I think when you talk, if you're talking about the Manhattan District Attorney's Office, it gets harder mm -hmm. to coordinate and there's more um, competition between the op offices to whatever evidence they've developed to hold on to it themselves. I do think, you know, I have to think, though, that in an investigation like this is so important um, you know, that they, they would at the end of the day work together. But it, it, as you know, it depends a lot on personalities involved who, who are trying to, uh, you know, those kind of agreements. 
Yeah, I will say uh, one thing just as uh, something that you and I, I think, know, but I'm not sure our listeners know, is that there it is common for federal and uh, federal prosecutors to provide information that they've collected via grand jury uh, to state prosecutors. And there's a procedure for doing so that's set forth in uh, what used to be called the U.S. Attorney's Manual is now the Justice Manual. Uh, so there it, it is. It's it is certainly the case that. Uh, federal prosecutors can share uh, information that they've gathered in their investigation with state state uh, prosecutors if there are crimes under state law that that it would be more appropriate for those prosecutors to charge. Would they also be able? Yeah. Would Congress be able to subpoena the prosecutors? Well, that's a great question, and that really goes to uh, the sort of some of the points we've discussed earlier about um, uh, about the rules uh, of disclosure of the Mueller report, which is. I think Congress can can subpoena whatever information it wants from the Justice Department, but then there's going to be a back and forth about what can be produced uh, to Congress as a result of that subpoena, and then further from that, what can be disclosed to the public. And there was a lot of fighting about that in the last Congress because that that Congress subpoenaed DOJ for stuff relating to Hillary and so forth. Uh, here, I could imagine it going in another direction. And I think Adam Schiff has said that since the, the that he told that he said that since they set such a broad precedent uh, in the last Congress, he's going to expect the same level of cooperation with his subpoenas. Yeah, and also, I mean, the one thing that you know, I know you've said that many people have said this, but I just want to remind people that. You know, the reason for the DOJ policy, um, putting aside grand jury rules and, and uh, executive privilege, but the, the policy of not exposing things publicly about people who are not ultimately charged doesn't apply if we're talking about a, the president who at least, you know, presumably uh, right now, would, you know, under the way the, the, the Office of Legal Counsel opinion the Department of Justice wouldn't charge. So it, it just has very different, um, I think there's there's different uh, policy issues at play as to whether that information, if there is information, should be public. Mm-hmm. I, have, I, have one, I have a question, too, that a lot sure. of people are wondering about, including me, because it sounded a little ominous. What did you guys think when uh, Cohen asserted that if Trump loses in 2020, uh, he will refuse to leave office? It was. I thought that was a very strange moment. Did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I. I it was strange. I thought it was strange as well. Um, I, I. 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 Yeah. What did you? What do you make of that? Maybe that was. I didn't know how to react to <laughs> yeah. that. Yeah. It's like what? I don't. Yeah. I didn't. I, I didn't know if that was just something he was saying. Like this is what I. I think. You know. And which I wouldn't have ever thought before about. You know, a president, but it, it didn't sound totally crazy or. If he was saying it, another, you know, based on um, something Trump or somebody else had said to him, and and that was something that maybe no one wanted to follow up, but nobody followed up. Well, what do you mean by that? It right. was just kind of hanging out there. So I think that's part of why it was strange. It was just a statement of well, he won't go, you know, peacefully or something, and and then nobody followed up to say what do you mean and why do you think that? I don't know why they didn't. Did they not want the answer? Did you know? Did the, were the Republicans afraid of what he would say, and the Democrats kind of wanted it hanging out there? I I don't know. But mm. there there could have been some follow up, and there wasn't. Bizarre. Yeah, I it was inter- yeah. Uh, very interesting. Uh, one thing, I, by the way, I will say is 
Another interesting comment that came out, not from the hearings, but more generally over the last couple of days, is um, Maggie Haberman said that people close to uh, President Trump have uh, said that he is hanging on in uh, and trying to run for re-election in part because he wants to put off any potential indictment from the Southern District of New York. Not because they, they, they claim it's because he's being framed or, you know, the Southern District is going to find something on him. But I thought, what an interesting take. I mean, it, what a bizarre situation that we have people close to the president of the United States who think that he is running for re-election largely because he doesn't want to get indicted uh, now. He'd rather get indicted in four years. Yeah, well, if, I mean, if there's truth to that idea, um, which, you know, I, I can believe it, then that that probably means the policy is very wrong, that he can't be indicted while in office, because he shouldn't be able to obviously use the presidency as, you know, immune, immunity from prosecution if it's warranted. Yeah. So, Mimi, I, you know, I, 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 I what I'm curious about now is, what do you think we should be expecting? I mean, we have potentially the Mueller uh, investigation ending sometime soon. And then we also, um, you know, we also have obviously more to come from all these other investigations. What what do you see uh, coming in the weeks in the in the weeks ahead of us? Yeah, I mean, I still view the quote ending of the Mueller investigation as just the ending of one phase and the beginning of another, because I do think that whatever you know, Mueller finds and and or doesn't find there will be some handoff of something to other prosecutors to continue with. So I'm not even sure that those threads are just going to sort of stop, you know, and, and, and be tied up in a, in a neat bow one way or the other. I think there's going to be some handoff, um, you know, which as we've already seen some of it, but there may be, that may be kind of the non-public part. You know, we keep hearing about there's still redactions and, and uh, you know, clearly, aspects of Mueller's investigation that are are still very unknown to us. And it could be that he's going to, you know, put that all in the report and maybe it'll get revealed to us or not. Or it could be that some of that is because it's it's being handed off to other offices um, to keep keep going with. And it it may not be precisely about the quote Russian collusion that we're talking about, but things that are sort of spinoffs of that. So, um, I think there there may be more even within that realm. And then, you know, I think the Southern District, I mean, we are seeing um, different uh, sort of areas that they're, they're seem to be focusing on. I mean, I, I, I believe that, that we're not done hearing about um, the campaign finance fraud scheme and AMI and that whole uh, sort of aspect that there might be other people charged in that scheme. Um, and then I, I think that, you know, we're just going to keep hearing uh, and probably eventually seeing some charges coming out of these different fraud crimes that we're talking about. I mean, I just don't. And, and it may be that they try to get permission to charge Trump in office. It may be that the Trump organization gets charged if it was used as a vehicle for all of this fraud. It may be that people close to Trump from the Trump organization, um, which would include family members, get charged with it. But it does seem like, as you said, there's so much evidence already in the public record uh, that it's hard to imagine how there aren't charges that come out of that. Yeah, I, I, I think that there's going to certainly be some charges out of that. And then, you know, it, it seems also this there's uh, investigations that could go on for quite some time. You know, the subpoena that came out from the, uh, about the Trump inauguration 
seemed to me like it was in a very right. early stage. Like just we went to all yeah. sorts of documents on everything. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't even mention I forget. There's so many different strands. But yes, the, the Trump inauguration committee is obviously another big one. And the Eastern District of New York is also looking at that. Um, you know, nobody as far as we I, I don't know what how it's divvied up, but they have a piece of that as well. Yeah, I don't understand that either. I was kind of something that was opaque to me. One one uh, easy thing about being a federal prosecutor in Chicago is we have one huge district. So we never <laughs> were competing with uh, competing districts yeah. for uh, cases. It was I would be competing with the Southern District of New York for financial cases. Uh, but it would be uh, you know, a different sort of thing. Whereas in 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 New York, that's sort of a famous issue where you've got these districts that are that are very, very close to one another. And obviously both uh, have a great reputations. Well, Mimi, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. I've, I've learned a lot uh, once again. It's a great conversation. Thank you. <laughs> I've, I've enjoyed it. It's like talking to a colleague uh, and friend about these interesting issues. So thanks. So let's bring in uh, my friend and former law school roommate, uh, Ro Khanna, who happens to be a congressman from California who is on the House Oversight Committee and I thought did a very fine job, uh, although I'm biased, uh, questioning Michael Cohen this week. Welcome back to the podcast, uh, Congressman Kana. We have uh, Patty here as well. Hello, sir. Hey, Renato. Hi, Patty. Hello. So I will tell you, uh, we have been discussing uh, your questioning and the and the performance of Michael Cohen. Uh, for uh, quite some time now, over an hour, and your questioning, and I've t- and I've already told everyone that you know we, had, you and I had talked a lot about it in advance. I thought really brought out some interesting, um, uh, you know, some interesting testimony from from Mr. Cohen. I was wondering what your thoughts were about you, not only your questioning but the hearing as a whole. Well, I appreciated uh, your advice, Renato. I uh, think you should get uh, uh, your share deserved credit, especially with listeners, because, uh, uh, you know, we had discussed extensively the line of questioning and uh, not having a long preamble and not making a typical political speech. Uh, and that was very effective. Uh, you know, the admission we got that Donald Trump Jr. was involved in a criminal conspiracy uh, in basically authorizing payments that were illegal and in cooking the books was huge. And then Cohen's testimony, of course, that Trump was executive, too. Uh, I know there are reports out there saying that he, uh, Trump is an executive, too, but Michael Cohen hasn't corrected his testimony. So uh, at the very least, we know that Trump Jr. is being investigated uh, by the Southern District of New York. And I think that's uh, uh, a very significant uh, development because wholly apart from Mueller and collusion, uh, Trump has some very serious exposure with these financial crimes in the Southern District of New York. And I think AOC uh, brought out similar concerns with Trump's uh, taxes and how he may value uh, his tax returns and committed financial fraud that way. So uh, I don't think enough attention has been paid to the investigation in the Southern District of New York or to these financial crimes, and that may be where Trump's most vulnerable. Yeah, I think he is. I was. We were just talking with a former supervisor in the Southern District of New York, who's an MSNBC legal analyst, and and I think that was our both of our view in that you know there's some very important testimony that wasn't getting enough attention, and really the 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 most important exposure that Trump has, I think, is on that front. And what, what you know regarding Executive Two, you know, her takeaway was. 
it seemed logical to her that executive two was Trump Jr. based on the fact that he signed the check and so forth. I think your your um, your conclusion about it makes a lot of sense to me, which is regardless of who executive two is in the in the charging document, it might be this controller in the Trump organization, which would also be obviously a, a high executive in the Trump organization. Regardless of that, um, uh, Trump Jr. is clearly involved in this. He signed the check. Michael Cohen thought that this very well could be Trump Jr. because he's clearly in the thick of this transaction. And I think what this suggests is that we need more investigation to find out more about Trump Jr.'s role, uh, this controller potentially, Mr. Weisselberg. So I know that Chairman Cummings said that he's going to be calling more witnesses in. And, and, I, and I imagine that um, you're, you guys are going to be looking into this tax issue that you mentioned as well. Absolutely. I mean, we uh, are going to be calling uh, folks like Weisselberg, Rana Groff. Uh, I think we need to have Donald Trump Jr. himself. And I'd urge uh, uh, your listeners, Renato, to actually look at when I asked Michael Cohen, uh, does that mean that Donald Trump Jr. is uh, and others are under a criminal investigation? And he, and he says, well, I can't answer that. But look at his body language. Look at his hesitation. And uh, and you, of course, are a prosecutor, so you'd be able to tell it's pretty clear uh, that he basically knows that they are but doesn't want to say. And, and folks can see that clip for itself. But that, to me, is a, uh, a, a huge development. Uh, and I think Democrats need to be far more aggressive in getting that narrative out, especially because we don't want to put all our eggs in the basket of the Mueller report, which I know you've got an article coming out making, making that point. Yeah, that came out today. I will tell you, I've already had a okay. lot of folks on the right wing uh, attacking me for it today. Swarming, uh, yeah, there's a lot of swarming on the right. Uh, why attacking. are they? Why are they attacking you from the right? I, I thought you were saying the Mueller report may may not be the silver bullet that we hope it is. Yeah, they said I was moving the goalposts. They like the the highest goalposts <laughs> possible. <laughs> uh, which, so I I thought that was funny. I didn't expect the right wing to be the ones attacking me, but that is what's what's happening. I, I will say that. Um, you know, one thing. Maybe that, it's just because you tweeted at AOC, Renato. Anyone who tweets at AOC develops, gets the wrath of Fox. <laughs> Apparently, a mere association. Yeah. Um, I will <laughs> say. I will say though that um, you know one thing that is a challenge is the narrative on this financial stuff. You know, a lot of the journalists and the producers and stuff that I talk to say it's very hard to explain this stuff to people. I know when I explain this to juries, it can be a challenge to explain it to a jury. And that's really part of the thing. I, I give you credit because, you know, his the way that uh, Congress that uh, Congressman kind of asked the questions, Patty, was not the way completely that I wrote them because he was, he's a, you know, he understands sort of how to make them political. I do think that there's an element element of of uh, th this being a ch more of a challenge to explain to people i agree renato you know that's why i use the uh, phrase garden variety financial fraud and some people said oh are you making this less serious than it is and i said no that wasn't my uh, intention my intention was to say this is just ordinary crime it's not something really arcane or complicated i mean basically you've had an organization cook their books and uh, corporations that like Enron or others that do this, they go to jail. And what you've had is uh, an illegal scheme to cook the Trump uh, organization's books that the president and uh, Donald Trump Jr. were likely involved in. And this guy Cohen is involved in this conspiracy, and he's the only one going to jail. So there may be even simpler ways to explain this, but uh, this is not some really complicated crime. I don't think we have to get into the uh, all the details of campaign finance violation. I, I, I just think we need to talk about basic financial fraud and not 
you know, not make this overly complicated. Yeah, I, I think that that's right. And the challenge is doing that because, um, you know, I think that for a lot of folks, they don't understand everything going on with the Southern District of New York investigation. And I think everyone needs to start getting up to speed because the Mueller investigation uh, you know, is in a, l- a later stage, and this is still ongoing for years to come. And for people who are trying to understand all this, I think some people, for those who maybe haven't watched committee hearings before, because this drew a lot of new audience members, I think, on all the channels, uh, I'd like to know for many people, what, what is the end game? What, what, is, uh, what kind of goals do you guys set, or what are the possibilities here based on the information that you gather? Well, the first job of Congress uh, is to inform the American public, right? I mean, we're not a body absent uh, uh, removing the president possibly from office that has uh, the ability to charge people or the ability uh, to actually prosecute a crime. Our role, the way I see our role, is uh, we've got to let get these facts in front of the American public. For so long, uh, people have been asking questions, and they don't know what's going on. The Oversight Committee is there so that people can have the information and then they can make uh, their judgments. The second thing uh, is, of course, if there is wrongdoing committed, we do have the power to refer that to the Justice Department for appropriate investigation. And finally, all of this ultimately has to go to Chairman Nadler and the Judiciary Committee. And uh, the culmination of all of this is we'll we'll have to make a decision about uh, what action to pursue against the president. I um. I have to say, I think that the role of Congress in making things uh, accessible and, and available to the public is so important because I've talked a lot in this podcast about how criminal investigations and the evidence collected by them often is not in the public view. A lot of people are are going to be disappointed when they find out that they're not necessarily going to see all the evidence that, whether it's Mueller or the Southern District of New York, is collected. So I do think this is important, um, and and I I think that. You know, the public is interested in seeing this stuff, whether it's tax uh, returns or just hearing the testimony of people like uh, Weisselberg or Felix Sater and so on. And, you know, Renato, I mean, my guess is as a former prosecutor, uh, I doubt the uh, prosecutors in Southern, the Southern District of New York uh, were thrilled with my questions or anyone in the committee's questions. And they probably know I probably know one percent of what they know, and they probably want a lot of this to be secret because they were building their case. But. Uh, I think our job is to say, look, no, here, when you're talking about the president of the United States, it's not just the prosecution. There's a duty for Congress to try to get as much of this information to the public in a way that's accessible, especially because this investigation may take years uh, and we don't have that kind of time uh, to inform the American public. Yeah, I, I have to say the Southern District of New York investigations literally may take years to come. They're investigating the Trump inauguration, and that, for example, that investigation seems like it's in a very early stage to me. So um, we're, we're going to have to exercise a lot of patience, and I will say, you know, there's a lot of hype uh, for the Cohen hearing, um, and I think that one thing that is unmistakable is that uh, the uh, chairman, uh, Congressman Cummings, did a very good job of maintaining decorum in a in a in a hearing that was very deeply partisan and i'm curious what your thoughts were about the partisan nature of that uh, hearing well look he's uh, a, a true statesman i'll uh, tell you before uh, the committee hearing started uh cummings called a members only meeting which is very rare usually uh members always take staff with them and uh and i don't think he'll mind my sharing this and he said to us he said uh, I don't want you out there scoring political points uh, 200 years from now 
people are going to write about this hearing. This is about uh, our duty uh, to preserve democracy and to get to the truth. So he is someone who understands that the weight of history is on his shoulders, that this is the most important uh, moment. Uh, I think he wanted to be fair. I think he wanted uh, the focus to be on getting the facts out and the truth out. Uh, and I personally don't think you could have a better uh, chairman, even the skillful way the, that he handled the incident between Rashida and Mari Meadows. He didn't want this to become uh, about either of them. This is ultimately about getting the truth about what the president has done. Yeah, I, I was impressed with his handling of that and, and some other uh, issues as well. I thought he skillfully handled uh, a lot of uh, issues that were raised by uh, Congressman Jordan and Congressman Meadows. I mean, at times, Congressman Meadows was interrupting, and uh, and I thought uh, uh, the chairman did a very good job of sort of diffusing some of those situations and handling them diplomatically. And when they when they had a concern that he thought was legitimate, of addressing that in a way that kept things moving, because there was definitely, a, I think, some effort to stall the proceedings. And I noticed ways in which he um, kind of skillfully sidestepped some of those attempts. So, very impressive job uh, on that score. Yeah, no, I, I have a tremendous amount of admiration and respect for him. And people like him and Jerry Nadler, you know, they're, they've been there for many years. They don't, they don't need to get on MSNBC or CNN. They're very secure in who they are. And you really get the sense that they're in it for the country and not in any sense self-promotion. And I think they have a moral authority that comes with uh, experience. So I, uh, uh, I have the highest uh, uh, respect for him. And I thought the Republican strategy was really flawed. This idea of going after Michael Cohen as a as a hack and a criminal. Yeah, obviously uh, those things are true. I mean, no one is holding Michael Cohen up as a paragon of virtue or as someone who uh, we want uh, uh, in government. But the issue is not Michael Cohen's character. The issue is why is the president of the United States sitting in the Oval Office writing checks to this shady lawyer? I mean, it's it's so absurd that you hear you have the, the the president of the United States is dictating issues about Afghanistan and Syria, and he's sitting in the Oval Office worried about a financial scheme to pay off a two-bit lawyer. I mean, that's really what the concern should be. Right, and if if you know all their statements about how he's a lying lawyer who can't be trusted, well, the president employed him for quite a long time. So I mean, that all kind of goes together. They you know they pulled that back, I guess. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, yeah, this president has no growth, right? I mean, I, uh, Renata knows this. We were talking about from law school, that famous Shakespeare quote of some people are born into greatness, some uh, achieve it, and some have greatness thrust upon them. And you feel like, okay, someone becomes president of the United States, but they suddenly feel the weight of the world. And even if they had people like Michael Cohen around them, they shape up and they realize now that they're president, they can't do this stuff. But this president has shown no capacity for growth, for realizing that there's a solemn obligation he has. And that, that to me, was so apparent uh, throughout that testimony. Yeah, I have to say, too, I, you know, one thing, though, in terms of growth is I, you know, you, you talked about how the chairman brought everyone together and felt the weight of history. I'm really surprised that other than Congressman, I think you say his name, Amash, Justin Amash, there was, yeah. there was not a lot of that on the Republican side. I, it really... Uh, kind of dampened my already dim hopes for some bipartisanship and statesmanship. And and I don't know what to make of that if if we're always going to be separated into red and blue teams. 
Yeah, no, it was disappointing. I mean, there wasn't, other than Amash, uh, uh, there wasn't anyone who said, you know, yeah, this is concerning. Uh, I'm concerned that there may have been violations, right? I mean, you could have the view I, that there were violations and we should condemn them, but that this doesn't rise to the level of removing the president from office. And I thought that actually that would be a more believable view from the Republicans to say, okay, yeah, we want, we want to hold the president accountable, but uh, the, the Democrats are overreaching. Instead, they they didn't want to even go there. I mean, it was they was it was just a kind of categorical defense, and uh, I think they lost a lot of credibility based on that. Yeah, I thought it was very unusual. I, I, I appreciate you joining us here and talking about it. I'm sure we're going to have you on again because there's going to be a lot more uh, to come on the House Oversight Committee in the months ahead. Looking forward to it. Well, just make sure now that every every member of the committee is going to be calling you for questions. Now, I'll give you your best one. You know? Well, <laughs> you, you, you right. my email too. I'll help out. <laughs> I don't have any legal experience. Yeah, all right, Patty. Just fun. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. Go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic.